0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is
4: always at your fingertips. I think at the very beginning of the process of figuring out what you want, you have to say... Do I want the whole trade-off that other people have made? Do I really want all of the downsides that go with those particular upsides? I think that's such a liberating place to begin. You really immediately push past that totally false and unhelpful thinking and instead say, what is it I was built to do, born to do? What did I come here to do? What's the right set of work? Uh, that I maybe even uniquely can bring to the world. To me, that's the essential part. That's what it means ultimately to be an essentialist. Most of us have been raised to ask $3 questions. I was raised to think about those questions myself, but we really should be asking $30,000 questions. The big ones. Do I have a good job and am I paid well? Am I automatically saving and investing? if I'm married or if I'm in a relationship, is it with the right person? Which is probably the most controversial one of all. But most of us, we're asking these questions, should I buy a latte? When in reality, if we get these five to 10 big wins in life right, we never have to worry about lattes or any other $3 questions.
3: No matter how good we have it, we always want something more. And I think that's just the way we evolved. I think it's probably pretty good for our survival as a species and pretty bad for our happiness as an individual. But we're stuck with it. There's nothing we can do about it. So sometimes going after more is good for us. Sometimes it's got minimal consequences such as when we eat that second donut but sometimes it can have devastating consequences such as when we're unfaithful and put a long-term relationship at risk so i think that we go through life to some degree needing to be aware of these dopaminergic urges and realizing that they are primitive emotional urges And that it's necessary for us to use our sophisticated ability to reason to test these urges and say is this really something i want to do and if the answer is no then we're faced with a very hard task of fighting against our dopamine circuits it's not an easy thing to do we often fail such as when we cheat on a diet or cheat in a relationship or drink more than we should, or all kinds of other things. It's hard to do, but it's not impossible. And I think the first step is recognizing that we do have these forces inside our brains that are looking out for the species, but do not have our best interests at heart. And sometimes we've got to take an oppositional stance towards our own
6: brain. I think that's really important if you're going to do anything creative, or even like I said, you know, what I'm doing, whatever that is. And the point is, this kind of comes back to my new book about being an artist today. And one of the things that I discovered when I spoke to a lot of artists about their lives and how they've made their way in the world is that, A, almost all of them told me that they knew that they were going to be a writer or a musician or a film director when they were very young, before their teenage years, sometimes when they were very young. And the second thing most of them told me was, contrary to what you might think, and I said this because the question you asked me about my own father, they got enormous pushback from their families. Very few of them felt supported by their parents in making that choice. And this is one of the things that really drives me crazy about how we approach the arts and creativity in this country. And I don't think it's a new thing, quite frankly. We say that we value creativity. We especially say that we value creativity and, and art in children, art education in children. Very few people, very few families, very few schools actually encourage and support artistically gifted children. And the message they end up getting, not just from their family, but from their environment, partly because of school, is that they're dumb, Because they're not inclined academic often they're not inclined academically. They're not talented academically in the standard way that we expect and value. They are talented and gifted in a different way, but we can't see that or we don't value it. They're dumb, they're undisciplined, they don't have much of a future. They need to think of something else to do, otherwise they'll end up on the street, they'll end up in poverty. There's a huge disconnect, I think, in general, between the degree to which we value the arts and say that we value the arts and actually do in terms of how important they are in our individual lives and the way that we support artists.
7: I think media sometimes focus and fixate on separation and division because that creates conflict and in conflict we create tension and in tension we create engagement and in engagement we can sell advertising. Let's not be naive to think the media outlets are anything other than thinking about how to produce profits. Very few media outlets are existing out there for the purpose of education. Maybe an NPR, maybe. And you would contrast Cooper Anderson with Terry Gross and they listen very differently, as an example. Listening is the willingness to have your mind changed, And I don't think most journalists go into a conversation with a willingness to have their mind changed. They are there to ask questions, to trap the person they're interviewing them and getting a really sensational five to 15 second soundbite that will be replayed on all the other networks. That's not
8: listening. I've discovered that when a trauma happens, clues are left behind, clues in the form of emotionally charged words and sentences that live inside us and I found that they form like they form a breadcrumb trail if we learn how to listen to it if we learn how to follow this breadcrumb trail it's like finding the missing piece of the puzzle uh, which lets the whole picture come into view and then finally gives us a context for why we feel the way we feel look if we look at trauma theory we know that when a traumatic event happens to us significant information bypasses the frontal lobes so the experience of exactly what happened can't be named or ordered in words because our language centers have become compromised and our memory centers have become compromised and then without this language our experiences the experiences of a trauma they're stored as fragments of memory uh, fragments of body sensations fragments of images fragments of language emotions it's like the mind disperses and these essential elements, they get separated. So we lose the story of the trauma in a way we remember too much or we remember too little and we never complete the healing.
1: It turns out that when human beings move with other human beings in synchrony, it shifts what's happening in our brains in a way that makes us feel literally connected to the people we're moving with. And part of it is neurochemistry, some social bonding hormones like endorphins, possibly oxytocin. But people have this direct experience that if you're in a yoga class or you're marching in a protest or you are dancing with other people, whatever it is, that you literally feel connected and you sense yourself as part of something bigger than yourself. And as a result, people report liking the people they move with more, trusting them more, feeling more like they belong in a space where they move with other people, so less lonely or less stigma. They also feel more hopeful in general about themselves and their problems and the world. So they they report more optimism, more belief that like difficult problems can be solved. There's something really powerful about the psychological effect of moving with other people. And collective joy describes the like the euphoria of it, but you don't have to get this enormous ecstatic, like the the extreme version of, you know, everyone's at a rave and they're jumping up and down <laughs>
9: right. and maybe
1: other substances involved. And you're like, this is collective joy. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that extreme. It could just be a sense of general being that comes from doing sun salutations in a room with other people. And that translates into to real a real sense of social connection and bonding that, by the way, is not fake or phony.
2: People that want to do sex work for the real reasons, they, they feel compelled to either caregive or perform, provide a source of entertainment, an outlet for people. It's our job, it's not who we are. We don't go around having sex with people that are, you know. Yeah. But I just want people to know first of all, I understand if you judge us, I understand this might not be your choice career for a daughter, a sister, a friend, and that's fine. But please know that most of us that are in this career, it's our choice and it's on our terms. We are taxpayers, we're doing it legally and safely, and we value our work. And it's okay if you don't, but we are legal sex workers and do deserve respect. When you realize the power that your sexuality has with a woman that's quite powerful in itself, well what I would say first of all, I think that what you asked me right before that was something about art and how, how mm-hmm. it's artistic. And yes, yeah. porn, it is artistic. When you're when you're creating something on video, on film with someone, and you're you're just letting your your selves kind of melt into each other, that's very artistic and I think it's beautiful expression of of art and creativity in terms of this last question you just asked me women i don't think women should give guys a hard time for watching porn and you shouldn't judge guys for watching porn first of all anyone can you know do things in excess and once it becomes like a problem that's that's a whole separate conversation mm-hmm. but it's okay for guys to watch porn it's okay for women to watch porn it's okay to watch porn as a couple
9: talking more about my grandmother i would say that Being close to her was almost too much because you felt you weren't worthy of it. When she hugged, you felt anointed. And you left feeling stronger and more powerful. Her death took something sacred from me, but left something sacred behind, too. She summarized what I learned from all four of these extraordinary people. First, tell the truth. Second, treat others the way you want to be treated yourself. Third, give to others, even when you yourself have very little to give. Fourth, have compassion. And not compassion, the Dalai Lama calls some views of that sloppy sentimentalism. This is real. Compassion for every human being you encounter and indeed for all of humanity. And finally, she said, be a mensch. That's a Yiddish word. It's ineffable. Something difficult for me to translate. Best I can do is to say, be a decent, upright human being. Live your life according to the rules and guidelines that you learn from all of us. And that will have been a complete and wonderful life. That's what I took away from these four people. I have an answer to a lot of things that are summed up in one word. And that's love. Indefinable. Deep. Unrestrained. Relentless love. And you don't live for half a century or more with people, unless you have that. True for my friend Jerry Spire as well, who was with me from the, in fact, gave a speech at Columbia Business School in 2008 describing my subway odyssey. And I learned a lot about what he felt toward me and listening to that speech. And it touched me very deeply. So I cannot not mention my siblings, Joel, Ruth, and Brenda, who saw the worst of it, as you said before. And we have stuck together to this very moment. My sister Ruth is unfortunately extremely ill, and we've banded together to try and help save her.
4: I think the genesis of today's workday comes from the Industrial Revolution. Henry Ford was like, I can teach somebody to sit in this stool and turn this crank and we're going to make a thousand Model Ts and they're not doing anything with their mind. So it's totally possible for me to require that person to sit there for eight hours. Now we still have this idea that we need to sit at a desk, sometimes doing some really high level work and other times doing mindless, inane, copy paste madness. there's no reason for us to be doing that anymore. It probably sounds crazy when I say that, hey, I think in the future, we're gonna be working four hour workdays. But the reality is, when we do really deep, meaningful, creative work, I don't think that we have much more than a four hour bandwidth. No. I, I personally can't give that much deep work time. Really, then that means that the other time that I would have spent working would have just been doing mindless, robotic type processes. Why in the world am I doing that when there are ways that I can automate those things? Hard part is, as entrepreneurs, we're taught to tone out other voices and to just listen. In some ways, we have to rely on ourselves, listen to our own inner voice, and do things that go against the grain. And so, it it becomes a double edged sword, though, if we're unwilling to learn from our failures. And so, if all we do is we get back up and we pick ourselves up and we say, "Hey, I'm gonna go back and do the exact same thing that didn't work," but it's a humbling experience. I think you. You hit the nail on the head, tightrope walk is exactly how I would describe it. You have to tune out a certain level of disparaging, you know, comment (laughs) or comments that come from people who aren't in your position. And at the same time, uh, you still have to, you can't keep your blinders off indefinitely, right? You have to, you know, barrel forward in the face of adversity, yet still be flexible to steer a little bit and find the right fit. So yeah, it is a tightrope walk. It's all about the science of small, simple steps that I believe that a lot of people make things bigger in their mind. And that's why they don't take action consistently. And so you need to ask yourself, what is the tiniest action I can take to make progress towards this goal where I can't fail? I would actually challenge everybody. And I would say one thing you can do right now, a small, simple step, we talk about how children are such wonderful learners. Even when they're first learning how to walk, they could fall countless times. But after the seventeenth time, they don't say, "Okay, forget about it. I'm just going to crawl the rest of my life." But sometimes, as adults, we'll take a coding class or a karaoke or a salsa class or something, and then we'll get have an experience, and then we won't pursue it anymore. And so, these lies have to go through a process
10: of unlimiting. So, at the beginning, my comfort zone that whenever I experience a little bit of fear. Like, I want to go in this direction, I have a little bit of fear, then I'm switching gears. I'm not going in that direction. That's simple. I'm not willing to experience fear. And there's that term for this, is phobophobia, which is fear of being afraid. I wanted to avoid feeling that the fear, the feeling of fear, and so that was the end of my comfort zone. And now that is the beginning of my comfort zone. <laughs> like when I know that something is scary and I have that feeling, it's for me a sign. That's the that's the right path for me. That's where I should go. Of course, you have to be very analytical and, and real and down to earth. And if that path will lead you to like death or harm yeah. or going broke or whatever it is that you don't want to, of course, you have to make the right choice. But if that's not the end result when you may face failure you may face rejection or heartbreak or disappointment then it is worth the try
11: the whole quest in life is one of discovering that innate divinity that innate connection that we have with that universal creative timeless force that is out there and there are certain practices that can help take us there and one life may be enough or it may not And if it's not, then there is the afterlife, which is that after a while, you come back and you're reincarnated because life is cool. And the goal is to help advance your consciousness, to get to that place. And you'll keep recycling ultimately until you get there. And along the way, while we may not have memories of our past lives, there is this thing called karma, which is the connective tissue between our past, our present and our future, and that's the energies that we create in the world and what we put out there and the consciousness with which we operate and the habits that we you know, take on. Reincarnation as a vehicle through which to give us a second chance and a third chance and keep us growing and karma as that connective tissue.